in the book of Acts. It is going to start in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and go all the way through Acts chapter 5, verse 16. Again, that's Acts 4, 32, through Acts 5, 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. At an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together at Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Good morning, y'all. It's so good to be able to gather again and open God's Word and see what He has to say to us today. That's what we believe every single week when we open these scriptures together. This is God's Word, and we believe that through His Spirit, He is speaking to us. And so I would encourage you uh, to get out something to write with, something to write on. If you need something to write on and you didn't get a liturgy guide, you can get one in the lobby. I would really encourage you to get something out and uh, I'm not expecting you to jot down every single thing that I say as we encounter the word together. I am expecting you 
to be in tune with what the Spirit is showing you in the Word. And so sometimes that may not even line up with what I say. And you're like, no, I see something else here. I believe the Spirit once is applying this in a specific type of way. Write that down. But um, as we are proclaiming the Scriptures together, we want to be able to reflect. And, and a good way to do that is to take notes. So if that's helpful to you, then I would encourage you to do that. Um, the last time that we were together, last week we did not meet because of the snow, no possible way we could have made it up this hill. Um, so the last time that we were together, we saw that the early church faced its first major obstacle. So to set the stage, Jesus died, he rose from the dead, he uh, visited with the apostles, he talked with them, um, gave them a mission, and then he ascended into heaven. And just before he ascended into heaven, he gathers his followers together and he tells them what will be true of them, that they will be his witnesses throughout the whole world beginning in Jerusalem. But he also tells them to wait. He says, don't go out and do anything yet. You have to wait until you receive power from on high. You have to wait for the Spirit to come. And so the apostles and the disciples, this, this early group of Christians, they did, they waited, they gathered in a room, and they prayed for the Spirit to come, and then the Spirit did come. The Spirit descended upon them on the day of Pentecost, and they were filled with the Spirit, and then they started going out on mission. And as a part of that, they start preaching something really specific that the religious authorities did not like. And it was not that Jesus performed miracles in his life, and it was not that Jesus was a really good teacher, or that Jesus died. The religious authorities had a problem that they were preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is what they did not want to be preached. They didn't want that story circulating. And that's exactly what the apostles and the early Christians were spreading. The religious authorities that hear about this, and the last time we gathered together, they, we saw that they gathered Peter and John together. They arrested them, and they threatened them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Stop telling people that he is still alive. So at this point, the early church has every pragmatic reason to close up shop. Peter and John, they come back to the group and everyone gets in this room and you can imagine them sitting there talking to themselves. They're like, hey, listen, if you look at, actually, if you flip back to uh, chapter 4, verse 23, it says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And you can imagine after hearing the story of being arrested and, and threatened that they gathered together like, okay, well, what's next? What do we do? Because threats from religious bodies like the Sanhedrin are not idle threats. They will do something. And we see later on, they do respond with severe action. So they gather in this room, and they have every reason to just close up shop and stop. Okay? If you think about it, the religious authorities did not forbid them from gathering to worship. So someone in that room could have said, listen, all they have a problem with is us going out in the streets and telling people about Jesus. Let's just quit doing that. You know, we can gather in homes and worship. We can still pray together. We can still take the Lord's Supper. We can still share meals. We can still provide for one another and have a nice little community here. I mean, it's not even little at this point. You've got 10,000 people who are in on this. You know, we've got a good size group here. Let's just stop going out and speaking in the name of Jesus. They had every pragmatic reason to just start privately worshiping without fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave to them. But that was not an option for them because gathering and privately worshiping, even publicly worshiping, is not the mission. 
the Lord's plans for his church, Big C, and his plans for local churches like us, Little C, are counterintuitive. We have no reason to throw in the towel when Satan opposes us. Opposition is not a reason to stop fulfilling the Great Commission. But we might as well throw in the towel if we abandon our mission to make the real Jesus known as a response to opposition. Opposition is not the greatest threat to the future of our church. Conflict is not the greatest threat to the future of our church. Apathy is. Apathy to the mission that Jesus has given us is the greatest threat to the future of this church and any local church. We are going to face opposition. We see this so often in the early church, and it's still true today. We're going to face opposition from the outside and from the inside. We see both in our passage today. And this opposition has zero bearing on the advancement of the kingdom of God. Neither persecution from outside the church or sin from within the church can stop the kingdom of God from marching onward. The only thing that can stop the gospel from advancing in a local church is if that local church stops keeping in step with the Spirit and stops speaking about Jesus. Apathy is the greatest danger, not opposition. And so we're not trying to come up with ways to eliminate any form of opposition that we could ever face as a church so that we can fulfill the mission Jesus has given us. That's not what we're trying to do. We can't do that. We need to try to eliminate our apathy to the mission. So in order for us to do that, in order for us to keep advancing the good news of Jesus in Tupelo and beyond, knowing that we are going to face opposition, we need to do three things that I think this passage shows us. We need to reflect the heart of God. So if you love to take notes based on the sermon, three headings for you. First, reflect the heart of God. If we're going to keep advancing the gospel in Tupelo and beyond, we have to reflect the heart of God. Second, we have to reflect the holiness of God. And then finally, we have to reflect the grace of God. So as a church, we will advance the gospel regardless of opposition, no matter what form it comes, if we continue to reflect the heart of God, reflect the holiness of God, and reflect the grace of God. Let's look at those one by one. So first, the heart of God. We will advance the gospel as we reflect the heart of God as a church. So look with me in Acts 4, starting in verse 32, 32 through 35. Luke writes, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. In this short little summary statement that Luke gives us, we're presented with this idealistic reality, but idealistic reality, of the early church. 
It literally doesn't get any better than what we find in this short summary paragraph. And if you read that and you're like, I have never been a part of a church that's like that. That's a common experience, okay? Most people have not been a part of churches like this, okay? This is a short summary statement that, you know, uh, was circumstantial and uh, was limited to this time probably, but we see that it was possible for the church to reach these glorious idealistic ends. The first church was bold in its witness and they were unified in their fellowship and they were generous in their care for one another so in other words the early church reflected the truth peace and compassion of god they're reflecting the heart of god and it and it significantly bolsters their witness so okay so first we see that they're reflecting the heart of god through bold witness if you back up to verse 31 this response to their their desperate prayer Um, We read, and when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And if you jump down to verse 33, it tells us how the apostles were sharing about the resurrection. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God cares about truth, and God loves sinners. And it's through the proclamation of the gospel that we see truth and love both going forth. The greatest truth, the reality of realities, has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And we see that through Jesus, God is at work to restore and renew all things. And the early church got fully on board with this by telling everyone that Jesus was alive. And they told everyone how that one fact changed everything. So as those who have been called and sent by Jesus, we owe this news to everyone we know. If we're going to live in obedience to the mission that Jesus has given us, we're going to have to take the gospel, this news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and share it with people. And as we share it with people, we need to pray to the Lord to give us boldness because it is not an easy thing to do even in the Bible Belt relationships really are at risk sometimes whenever you start having these very consequential conversations but eternity as is at stake and our whole purpose as a church is bound up to following this mission that jesus has given us and as we share the gospel with people we reflect to them the heart of god we we love them enough to tell them the truth and we're telling them the truth out of love and through love god so loved the world that he sent his son and so as we're telling them about jesus and their need for him we are reflecting god's heart for all types of sinners in all types of places as we boldly witness to who jesus is and what he's done we reflect god's heart and as we boldly witness about jesus god actually does a work on our hearts he starts to shape us and form us in such a way that we actually start caring about and loving even those who are hardest for us to love. It's funny how it works. If you wait until you're magically one day not apathetic to sharing the gospel, you're probably going to be waiting for a very long time. Apathy, once it sets in, it's hard to shake. If you resolve, though, if you resolve to start sharing the gospel with people in your life, and, and you're like, I don't know how to do that, pray. I don't know. I don't know what else to tell you. Pray to the Lord. Ask him. Ask him how you can do it. Ask him to provide opportunities for you and resolve 
to tell other people about the resurrected Jesus and how he has changed your life. It says the apostles were telling them their testimony. Did you notice that? We expect the apostles to be these world-class teachers. That's not what they were doing. Christianity spread because people were literally just telling about who Jesus was, what he did, and what that meant for them. That's, that's literally all they did. And as we continue to do that, as we resolve to just tell people the gospel, the Lord does a work on our hearts. People that you have a hard time loving, when you start talking to them about Jesus, you actually find yourself starting to love them more, starting to actually care about them more. So we reflect the heart of God through bold witness, just like the early church. But something else we see here is their unity. Okay, we reflect the heart of God through our unity. Notice this about the early church, how attractive they were. It says in verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. God doesn't just care about, pe- or care about truth, he cares about peace. That verse should convict us to the core. I mean, first of all, what a glorious time to be a Christian, where you're actually a part of a church where every single person there is of one heart and soul. There's this unity, unlike anything you've ever experienced before in your life. I mean, have you ever been a part of a church where the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, the full number. I mean, you know, there's there, no way. There's always a, a, you know, a sister Diane, you know, who, who has trouble with the color of the carpet or, you know, this mural that was just painted on the nursery wall and she gets upset about it. I mean, there's always one, right, where it's just like, and maybe you're the one here, I don't know. Um, sometimes I'm the one, and it's just like you're, you're unable to be really all in with the people there. It's hard. There probably isn't a church on the planet where every single person there is of one heart and soul. And so we recognize that this is something that is very, very rare in a sinful world. But we also recognize that it's possible because we believe this happened. We don't think Luke is just making up a story to try to make the church seem better than it actually was. We believe that Luke is giving us actual history here. Every single person out of the 10,000 that were gathered together, they were of one heart and soul. How could that ever be possible when you have 10,000 people with 10,000 different personalities and differences and preferences? How? through the gospel, through the message that they are compelled to share with other people. The reason they're compelled to share with other people is because they're seeing its power at work in their own midst. People who are so different from each other are of one heart and soul. It's only through the gospel, only when the gospel is central, only when the gospel is our highest common value will we even be on the path toward unity that shows the heart of God because we know God is one. So it makes sense that his desire for his people is that we would be one. Unity in our church bolsters the witness of our church. Now, it would be really strange and also really noticeable for people who are hearing you share the gospel also find out that you hate the people you go to church with. So, I mean, imagine you're, you're, you're a person and someone from this church is telling you how much God loves you. Listen, you don't understand how much God loves you. And then you find out they actually hate the people that they even go to church with. It's, it's, it's a bad witness. It's a bad witness. Um, but... 
a church with diverse personalities and with different preferences who rally together around the cause of Christ will show others that no matter who they are or what they've done, if they follow Jesus, they will have a place to belong because we are all about him. Hey, Brad, I think I'm going to switch to this mic, okay? Is that all right? Thank you. All right. So we reflect the heart of God through our unity. One more thing to see here about reflecting the heart of God. We reflect the heart of God through our generosity. So look at verse 34. Luke tells us that there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And then he gives us this example of Barnabas who, who owned a field, sold that field, and gave all the money to the apostles. All right, um, listen. One of our members, Bryant, we actually met with a small group this past week to do some uh, you know, sermon prep, did it with a group. It was a phenomenal time we had together. And uh, Bryant commented on these verses. Actually, after we read it, the first thing he said was, this is extreme generosity. And, and we just kind of sat on that for a minute. Extreme generosity. I mean, you have people who recognized that there were other people in their community who were in need. And instead of saying, hey, what's that specific need? I'm going to meet it. They said, hang on one second. And they went and they found a, a realtor and they sold their house. And they took the money from the sale and they gave it to the apostles and said, use that to meet these needs. They sold their house. They sold their prop. They sold their land. Do you understand how big of a deal it was to own land at this time? And they sold it. They're like, I don't need this because these people don't have food. I'm not letting them go hungry. I'm not letting them live in poverty. I'm going to sacrifice of myself so that this person can have everything that they need. And so Brian, he said, this is extreme generosity. And, and Brian said this too. I thought it was so interesting. He said, this is a convicting passage for all of us, but especially for those of us content with tithing. From Bryant's lips to God's ears, right? Okay. Um, so uh, I had to quote him because it's like, I didn't say it. If you, if you get mad about that, you just go to Bryant, all right? Um, but he's right. He's right. It's a convicting passage where we can't just, that's why in our time of giving, we don't say, hey, you're only faithful if you give a certain amount. No, you give freely and you give cheerfully and you give generously. And there are some times, the Lord sometimes blesses some of us in certain ways so that we are set up to give beyond, to give with extreme generosity so that others in our midst would not go in need. It's such a convicting concept here, but it reflects the heart of God. Because who is more generous than God? No one. No one is more generous than the Lord. We, we learn from Paul that although Jesus was spiritually rich, for our sake he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. It changes the way that you think about everything that happens in your life. It changes the way you think about receiving raises. I mean, have you ever thought about receiving a raise spiritually? It could be. It could be that in a particular season of your life, the Lord gives you a raise because someone else in our fellowship receives a pay cut. 
And so you're able to to provide for their needs. It's the beauty of the local church. We are fully committed to one another. This is an overflow of the unity that they experienced. This extreme generosity. Generosity is an expectation for all of us, but radical generosity should be a goal and maybe a reality for some of us. The heart of God. And as we live this way, we, we testify to the realness of the resurrected Jesus. So the heart of God. But second, we advance the gospel as we reflect the holiness of God. And now we get to the sobering part of our passage. Turn to Acts 5. And let's read this together. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property... And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, and did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart You have not lied to man, but to God. So let's pause there for a second. We advance the gospel as we reflect the holiness of God. That's the idea here. Um, The church is facing a, a very significant interruption here through the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. We, we see immediately that Satan uses not only outside forces, but also followers from within the church to oppose the Lord and his mission. We see that Satan is behind all of this. It's Satan who's filling the heart of Ananias. And through this sobering story, we learn so many things. For example... We learn very quickly that even though Luke has given, this, this, given us this glorious picture of the early church, we, all we have to do is get to the next chapter and we learn that the church wasn't perfect. The church is not perfect. If, if you are expecting the church to be perfect and you're discontent because you're waiting for that day to come, let me help you out and suggest that you change your expectations. It's never going to be perfect here. The early church wasn't perfect. The church isn't perfect. Something else we learn is that the mission of God can be opposed from within the church. And that happens when followers of Jesus are more filled with Satan than they are the Spirit. But but what I want to highlight here is that the church advances the gospel when she reflects the holiness of God. So what's happened here? Ananias and Sapphira, they sold their property, they took part of the proceeds, and they took it to the apostles. Now, we would think, initially reading this, well, the problem was they, they were stingy. You know, they, they should have given the full, you know, uh, value of the sale to the church, but they didn't. They gave part of it and kept some from themselves, and they were being stingy. They needed to be more generous. But Peter tells us that's not the issue. Peter says, hey, before you sold the property, it was yours. You didn't have to sell it. You could do whatever you wanted to with it. We weren't demanding this. After you sold the property, the money was yours. You could have given all of it to the church. You could have given part of it to the church. You could have kept all of it for yourself. It was yours to do whatever you wanted with it. It was at your disposal. The problem was you gave part of it to the church and pretended you gave all of it and kept some for yourself. You lied to the spirit. You lied to the church. It was dishonesty. It was hypocrisy that was the real problem here and then the Lord judges them do you see what happens do you remember you'll never forget this 
verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. I mean, my goodness, what if the next time you lied, you just fell down and had a heart attack on the spot, you know? It's, it's terrifying to think about. We, we go on later, and we see that, that Ananias' wife, Sapphira, is filled in on this news. And so Peter tests her. He says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And then she, she thinks that no one knows except her and her husband. So she says, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. The Lord judged them for their sin immediately with death. Now, why? Why is this happening? What's the point? If you'll permit me to make a point about the death of two people. Um, there's a point. It's because God is holy. God is holy. And his covenant people are called to holiness. God is holy. And that means that he is set apart from all corruption, wickedness, and sin. He is morally perfect. And the whole arc of the Bible is focused on how a holy God responds to sin. Since he is a just God, he responds with judgment. Since he is a good God, he responds with mercy. But when you think about the church, we love to think about the church being filled with the Spirit whenever we see things like the apostles are given boldness, the gospel's going forth, there are people being healed, and we're seeing this great power in the presence of the Holy Spirit. But we can't celebrate that on one hand, and then on the other hand forget that to be in the presence of the Lord is to be at his disposal on both ends. And he is a holy God. And so as the church, we are the temple of the living God. So we're not playing games here in the church. The church possesses the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So we can't expect God to work miracles through us and not deal with sin. He is holy and the power of his holiness swings both ways. So, an easy takeaway here. The integrity of our church matters. Hypocrisy and deceit will destroy the community of our church. If you want to tear any church apart, all you have to do is create a culture of gossip and deceit. And Satan will love it. He will empower you. He will fill you, as he filled Ananias. Our conduct, this is sobering, guys, our conduct within the church can either advance or stifle the mission of the church. It can't stop it, but it can stifle it. How we behave with one another matters for our witness. What we do in the secret places of our hearts matters, and if you think that you can somehow have this secret sin that no one knows about, you are lying to the Holy Spirit. Because he knows. And he is holy. Now, when you hear this account of God's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, I know what your first thought, you're tempted to think. It's, it's really uncomfortable. And so maybe you think, well, yeah, that's bad and all, but that would never happen to me. I mean, in fact, I've lied in church before. And, I, I, you know, I walked out and went to Danvers. Um, so... You may think that, like, hey, this, this would never, ever happen to me. 
But I want to encourage you to follow your instincts. When you first read that passage and you read that Ananias falls down dead, and then you read that they don't even tell his wife about it, you know, they, they have a dang funeral and don't invite his wife. And, and then they tell her, and she lies, and then, you know, Peter is like, hey, you see those guys at the door that just buried your husband? They're about to carry you out. And then she falls down dead. Okay? Your instinct is what? That's harsh. That, that sounds and feels and seems really harsh. And that's a good first instinct to have. Because then that can cause you to remember that we are playing with fire when we ignore holiness in our lives. So, if you hear this story, and you start thinking about the implications, and you immediately start to think about other people's sin, and you're like, you know what, yeah, if those people would quit sinning that way, they'd quit tearing our church apart. Like, if that's your first thought, then you are falling right into Satan's trap for you in our church. The integrity of our church's witness begins in your own heart. So the first response has to be self-reflection. So for the sake of the advancement of the gospel through us, we need to respond to passages like this, events like this, the way the early church did. What did they do? You notice this in verse 5? Um, I'm sorry, um, in verse 11 of chapter 5? And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. All right, so the holiness of the Lord, the heart of the Lord, finally, the grace of the Lord. We advance the gospel as we reflect the grace of God. So how can we reflect the heart of God? How can we reflect the holiness of God? The only way for that to happen, the only way for us to carry out our mission is by the grace of God. God has to do it. God has to intervene if people like Ananias and Sapphira, because guess what? You, you and I, we're not Peter in that story where we're able to discern people's hearts. We're Ananias and Sapphira. We have sin in our own hearts. We are prone to lie to the Holy Spirit. So we need God to intervene if messed up sinners like us are going to accomplish his glorious purposes in this world. We need him. And the good news is he does intervene. So three questions as we close. Question number one. What was the source or the key to the early church's remarkable boldness, unity, and generosity? It's easy to read that passage and say, you know what, that's wonderful, and maybe it'll be like that in heaven, but we'll never see anything like that here. Well, I don't know. They had the same, we have the same gospel they had, we have the same spirit they had, and we have the same mission that they had. We can see glimpses of this in our own midst, but how and what was the key to it? Their culture was a direct product of the Holy Spirit. You see, whenever they gather together after Peter and John are released from prison, they gather together and they pray and they beg the Lord to give them boldness. And they beg the Lord to keep working through them. And how does the Lord respond? He gives them boldness. He gives them the spirit. And then they go out and they carry out the mission. And then the Lord continues to work in and through them. Then they reach this hiccup. Ananias and Sapphira sin in this egregious way. And they learn, oh, wow, we can mess this whole thing up ourselves. Our sin can stifle this mission. And he continues to work. Only because the early church was filled and empowered by the Spirit did they set aside their differences, sacrifice for the good of those in need, and tell others about Jesus with reckless abandon. And look at the result. Even after the story of Ananias and Sapphira, look at verse 12 of chapter 5. 
Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And then jump to 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Nothing can stop the Lord from accomplishing his purpose in his imperfect church. So the source of this, though, is the Spirit. So I would encourage you, in your life groups, when you meet together, as a family, pray for the Spirit to move in our church so that we can accomplish the Great Commission. Pray that the Lord would give you boldness as you think about one or two people in your life this year who need to come to faith in Jesus. Ask him to give you boldness, and guess what? We believe that he will. All right, but there's, there's another question that I think is on all of our minds, at least on mine. Why don't we all face the type of judgment Ananias and Sapphira faced? Why do we get off the hook? We lie. We sin. We feel like we've, we read that and we're like, oh, wow, I've done a lot worse than that. I never thought about falling over dead. Well, this is where we need to understand how holy God is and how sinful we are and how deep his mercy is. Because it's only because God intervenes with grace that we don't face the same judgment. In our own strength, by our own merits, we will each fail to reflect the heart and holiness of God. And we are each prone to fall into hypocrisy. Each one of us can make a mockery of our church. And so if the advancement of the gospel depended on our own ability to be holy as God is holy, then it would never advance. Because even though we are saved, we are still sinners. Every single day that we don't fall dead is mercy from the Lord. Because we are sinners and we are playing with fire as we talk to him through prayer and as we ask the Spirit to move in our midst. It is because God is so gracious. It is because the cross of Christ is so effective to atone for our sin that we can even ask God for boldness. And one final question. I hope this encourages you. What can stop the kingdom of God from advancing? What can stop it? What can stop God's kingdom from advancing through us? Do you know the answer to that? The answer is nothing. There is nothing. And you would say, well, sin. No, not sin. Sin is not powerful enough to stop the Lord from using imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. And you would think, well, persecution. No, not even persecution. The Lord shows out even more when his church is persecuted. Not outward pressure from governing authorities. Not inward sin and corruption in the church. Luke is showing us that there is no interruption powerful enough to stop God from intervening to accomplish his purposes in the world through his church. God chooses to use his imperfect church. And even though we are unworthy and are prone to make a mess of things, God's supply of grace is endless. So the question is simple. Do you want to advance the gospel in Tupelo? Do you want to? Do you want to advance the gospel to the nations? Because if that is your desire, if we as a church desire together, if we are of one heart and soul to take the gospel and extend it to the ends of the earth, then there is nothing that can stop God from using us to reach our city with the gospel. Nothing. 
No amount of backlash, no measure of sin. There are no impenetrable barriers. The kingdom marches on. Only our apathy can get in the way. So let's pray. Let's pray together that by God's grace, we will advance the gospel by reflecting the heart and the holiness of God, all for his glory. Let me pray for us. Father.